You are listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. Hello and welcome to Dirt Work. This is your host, Adam Morrissey. Today, we're excited to be joined by Tim and Terrence Maiden to discuss and continue our conversations on equitable cities. The Maiden brothers are Dallas area business leaders, Terrence serving as CEO of Russell Glenn, our local development firm, and Tim, a senior vice president at Simmons Bank, focusing on commercial lending, including real estate projects. Tim and Terrence grew up in Oak Cliff in Southwest Dallas, attending Dallas Carter High School before continuing their football and academic careers at Texas Christian University. Tim and Terrence have been involved in many entrepreneurial ventures, until, including apparel, lines, and restaurants. In addition to their football careers and business, Tim and Terrence have been identified as transformational leaders in the communities through their affiliation with University of North Texas at Dallas and their nonprofit organization, Two Wins, which aims to enrich the quality of life within urban communities. Tim and Terrence have won just about every award Dallas area leaders can win. Uh, for both business and their passion for serving communities, including induction into TCU's Business Hall of Fame, recognized by Cadillac Shaping DFW and the President's Award from the NAACP Dallas chapter. How's it going, guys? Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. We're very pleased. No, absolutely. Um, Very humbled to have both you on the show. I've read so much about you all in Dallas Business Journal, D Magazine, and inspired by your story. Uh, As you all know, we're in the middle of a mini-series on equitable cities, which was inspired by Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. To date, we've spoken to lawmakers about the impact of policy. We've spoke to development organizers on community or in development. And today, excited to talk to you all about your stories rising to leadership positions in the real estate related industries, projects you guys have worked on, and the work you all do in the community to lift up the next wave of leaders. With that as a backdrop, curious, um, was there a reason you all chose to pursue real estate and banking rather than other disciplines and professions? Yeah, I'll take that first. You know, when, as, as you mentioned, Tim and I grew up in Dallas in the Oak Cliff area, and we were really fortunate enough to earn scholarships to uh, TCU to play for the Horn Frogs. And after uh, finishing our career there, you know, we really started to explore what's next, right? And um, none of our family members have been in the, uh, was in the real estate or banking industry. And so I think it was a new opportunity for us. You know, I think we're extremely grateful for the TCU alumni base who uh, made several introductions to different groups and different companies and provided us that platform to get our foot in the door of the industry. Uh, And I tell you, it has been uh, very fulfilling, right? And, you know, we've both made a career uh, out of these different industries and it's really has enabled us to make a huge impact in some of the communities that we operate in. And I would just add to what Terrence said, you know, we were real fortunate uh, to be involved with the TCU community. Uh, upon graduation, uh, we, we sat down with some key stakeholders uh, within the university, provost and athletic director, Eric Hyman at the time. And um, he recommended some individuals that we should just, you know, visit with and do some discovery and figure out if there was a good alignment for us, our personality and career interests. And for me, um, being a little bit more introverted and uh, having strong interpersonal skills, I thought uh, banking would afford me an opportunity to really, um, you know, advise um, business leaders, uh, business owners, uh, something that I felt like was in my my space of comfort. 
Yeah, what I when I was preparing for this episode, one thing I thought was so interesting was you know when I think about redlining and uh, Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law, which is about systematic policies that impacted the development of cities. You know, the two main professions that played a role in that are real estate and banking. So I, I thought that was really um, amazing. That you know sometimes when the things that get us into messes are also the ones that have to get us out. So appreciate you guys leading the charge in your respective disciplines. Did you all face any inertia or adversity getting into and rising in industries that in DFW have had a historic reputation of being predominantly white? Uh, yeah, I take that. This Terrence, uh, it was difficult, uh, especially being an African American getting into an industry that has uh, been dominated over the years by you know, middle-aged white men, uh, it was a very daunting sort of like ask, if you will, for me, you know, to just say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to commit to this industry and willing to put forth the effort that it takes to be successful. Uh, it, it did force me, right, to get outside of my comfort zone in many areas where I had to learn how to forge relationships with people that may not look like me or have my same experiences. And that has bowed well for me over my career because it helps me to be a lot more relatable to different aspects of both business and then personal life. And so, uh, you know, it, it was very challenging and it is still challenging today. Uh, but you learn how to navigate through that over time. Tim, anything to add on that? Yeah, this is Tim. You know, I would, I would say the same thing. You know, uh, the banking industry has been uh uh, you know, predominantly uh, um, male, um, white male uh, oriented kind of um, industry and platform. I think for me, uh, that worked to my advantage as well, because I think, you know, a lot of banking institutions more now so than ever is looking for diversity and inclusion and want to be able to touch uh, not just different silos, but all communities. And so what uh, being, being kind of raised in a predominantly African American community, it allowed me to understand some of the funding gaps and the lack of access to capital and how could I be a conduit, uh, for the banking institute to deliver these financial services. So it's, it's been, it's been rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. You guys referenced the strength of the TCU network and how impactful you know, having access to some of those resources were, how, how have mentors played a role in shaping you all as individuals and leaders? Yeah, mentors are key, right? You're always standing on the shoulders of giants. And TCU uh, provided us with some really key initial uh, contacts. And then uh, Tim and I probably both will attest to the fact that uh, we're big on networking. We're build on, uh, big on building relationships with individuals. But it also, we both have this circle of mentors that we can lean on and, and take really solid advice from and, and counsel. Uh, and that's important. And for us, we realize that to whom much is given, much is required. So uh, with that, uh, we also look for ways uh, to give back, right? And how can we become a mentor to the next generation of upcoming leaders? And so 
it's a, it's a cycle, you know, and I think it's an important cycle because uh, it creates this environment of change that is continual. And this is Tim. I would add to that. I think one thing that's been consistent with Terrence and I is uh, self-development and also uh, the willingness to embrace feedback and even uh, criticism from each other to push each other. And so these mentors who came alongside of us, uh, they 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 gave us access to to opportunities, but also they challenged us to, you know, to to grow and to to advance and in our profession in so many ways that um, these mentors have been like a, a really good sounding board, not just from the initial stage, but throughout the process of our professional development. That's great to hear. And I, I too, have been very humbled and the beneficiary of mentors. So relate on many of those fronts. Um, Tim, earlier you mentioned, you know, access to capital in historically underserved communities. In your banking career, you've had the opportunity to do some community development work, lending for groups and businesses in Southern Dallas. How do you see the role of financial institution in the transformation of historically underserved communities? Yeah, you know, the the longer you get into, uh, you know, serving uh, underserved, underbanked communities, the more you realize that too many too many communities across the country uh, have the lack of access to affordable financial services. And a lot of these communities are plagued with payday, predatorial, uh, title loan lenders, uh, not your traditional bank um, and financial services. And so what happens is um, they become over leveraged. Um, these, these products and uh, loans out there can be very expensive and it's really a response to an emergency. So I think, you know, providing access to capital is one thing, but also financial literacy uh, is really important, too. Um, you know, an example, it was really exposed during this PPP government funding program. A lot of these businesses couldn't even become eligible uh, for these these grant programs because of whatever documentation or not being structured properly not having the proper reporting. So when you look at, you know, these underbanked communities, you know, they need to complement the banking services with also educational programs that I think would really, really benefit uh, individuals within that within our community. Are there groups that are providing that sort of education today? Yeah. So I think a lot of banks, uh, our bank is one that, you know, target, you know, organizations, nonprofits, uh, church community. Uh, to get an audience to provide, to kind of educate and kind of educate each other uh, in providing, you know, how to budget, you know, how to um, establish and understand your the value of your net worth and how do you grow that over time. Um, uh, things that would help them to be a little bit more astute when interfacing uh, with banking on even the commercial side for us lines of credits, uh, working capital, how should those activities function? So it's just a process. And, 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 I, and I'm really pleased that a lot of banks are seeing the opportunities and trying to come up with solutions to address those those needs. When you look back on your career to date, Tim, are, are there certain projects that you have worked on that you feel have been profoundly impactful to raise up individuals, businesses and communities? And if so, what were some contributing factors that made these projects so successful? Yeah, I think um, 
I think of several, uh, and I think people make projects successful. I think collaboration is key. I think um, the commitment from their financial partner, bank bank partner, uh, to provide access to capital uh, and to underwrite the deal uh, uh, in an equitable way. I think those are contributing factors. I also think too, just, you know, the, the, the companies and the organization that I've witnessed experience a lot of success. Uh, they're always continuing to educate their, themselves and they're always networking, uh, to help other people. Uh, so we kind of rise together. Terrence, you've been quoted as expressing that you see real estate development as a vehicle to bridge inequities that exist in housing, education, healthcare, et cetera. How have you seen that vision come to fruition through the work of some of your projects? It's, um, you know, it's, I think Tim mentioned this too, it's, it's really a collaborative effort. Uh, real estate development is, is complicated, especially when you're going to communities that have uh, historically been overlooked or undercapitalized. So you, you have to creatively think through your financing package and your capital stack to make the numbers work. The other thing too is uh, it's a fine balance because you wanna be able to deliver what the market says is, is there, right? To get a return to your investors, but also provide amenities that the, that the community will embrace and value. And so it's, uh, it's been a labor of love. That's how I define it often, uh, because it is a, it's a balancing act, right? But what we're, what we have learned and what we're continuing to learn is that people, uh, drive projects. And so if you can get engaged with those communities and really understand what are the, uh, missing sort of ingredients, if you will, um, begin to put a development strategy that addresses those voids. Uh, it tends to lend to, uh, lend its, its way to success. Uh, albeit it may take a little longer than your traditional, uh, traditional development project. It's, it's more fulfilling, right? And so that's, that's kind of what we've learned thus far. Yeah, in our most recent episode, we were meeting with Maggie Parker of Innovon Neighborhoods, and she was describing similar things about the importance of engaging the communities to see what assets they have and what their needs are, um, and understanding the story of communities and neighborhoods when delivering transformational projects. Along the same lines, Terrence, everyone in the DFW real estate community is familiar with the transformational $200 million or so Redbird Mall redevelopment project. Tell us a little bit more about the thesis of that development, where all you where you are are today and what you hope the project will bring to the community. Yeah, so we we've been working on Redbird for the last four and a half, almost five years now. Uh and the investment thesis was uh there's people in the community that values quality and can afford quality amenities. If, if a developer and investment team can come and provide those things. And, you know, Redbird Mall was a, a very vibrant uh, place and a gathering spot for the Oak Cliff community and has been widely recognized just for that. Uh, it was really popular in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, and 
the mall started to decline in the late 90s and continue to sort of go down this down, downward spiral. And my partner on this, Peter Brodsky, really stepped up to buy the mall. And it, it took an investor that had the equity to just buy the mall uh, uh, to make it work because traditional capital wouldn't been wasn't a vehicle, right? It wasn't a true option here. And so you needed just equity uh, to come in to buy you more time to put together the strategy. But today things are trending definitely in the right direction. We announced late last year that UT Southwestern and Children's will be opening a regional medical center. Parkland is coming in. We're building luxury apartments. We have a Marriott Courtyard and Residence Inn coming in and office. And so it's, it's now really becoming a mall that has been reimagined into a more of an urban mixed-use sort of community center. And uh, we're really thrilled about where we are to date and kind of the forecast of, of where we're going. So it's, it's really exciting for the community and for the city of Dallas. Absolutely. I think for everyone, COVID-19 was a, a little bit of a washing machine of sorts. Uh, did COVID-19 give your team any worry or pause in regards to the plan development? It didn't. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, going into uh, 2020, we, we, we understood that retail was already been impacted, you know, by Amazon and other sort of online shopping. So, uh, I, I tell you, it did slow down some momentum that we were gaining on the leasing front, but COVID did allow us to make up uh, some uh, gaps on the construction side just because construction was deemed essential work. We were able to get ahead of our construction timeline, and, uh, and we also went back to reprice some of our uh, construction line items to get some savings. So that worked well. But I think the, the biggest win coming out of this is that because we've been able to uh, forge ahead with construction, hopefully when we get back to some sort of uh, sense of normalcy, Redbird will come to the top of people's radar because we can deliver space immediately. And we've already created a, a really dynamic environment with the mixed-use project. Yeah. On an earlier episode of Dirt Work, we had uh, the director of the SMU real estate program, Joseph Cahoon's on. And one thing he said about COVID-19 and real estate is that people are still going to desire to go to developments that have a strong sense of place. And with the mixed-use aspect of Redbird, sounds like that's exactly what you're delivering. Do you see this Redbird project as a potential model for malls in other parts of the country that have been a little passed by? Yeah, it's my it's my little hidden secret, right? <laughs> uh, I, de I definitely see it as a model. And I think just the level of interest that we, we've been receiving both locally and nationally uh, is beginning to uh, go up higher on people's radar. And so currently, as a company, we're, we're starting to look at other class B, C, and D malls uh, across the country that could be repositioned. Uh, and, and also reimagine, right? And if you go into some of these communities, typically malls were built in the center of these communities and residential uh, was built up around it. 
and so now, uh, fast forward, malls are very large pieces of property that's well positioned in communities that could, you know, be a different use or it can be demolished and converted to more urban residential. There's a lot of flexibility there. And so I, I think there's a market for it. Um, the, the reality is that there's a thousand malls in the country today and forecasters are predicting that that will be cut in a, into a third uh, by 2025, 2026. So we're going to see a lot of these malls become vacant and dormant, and it's going to yield opportunities for investors and developers to come in to repurpose these assets. Yeah, with any change comes opportunity. Turning the lens a little bit to the idea of to whom much is given, much is expected. The work you all do in the community is so important uh, through two wins and other community efforts. What are your goals for the various community initiatives that you all are a part of? Yeah, I, I can take that. I think uh, so. You know, we're very proud of the contribution and the impact two wins have made over the last 15 years. Started as a, a vision within our household to try to leverage our experience uh, growing up in a, uh, let's say, low to moderate income area uh, to matriculate to TCU to see the disparities of, of wealth uh, in some areas that uh, are under, lack the resources. And that was the premise for really establishing two wins. Fast forward 15 years later, uh, we are transitioning to really the Maiden Foundation to deepen our impact and to align ourselves with institutions uh, to expand our uh, touch and reach. Uh, we're very, again, we're very proud of the organic, very grassroots level impact of two wins, but we're trying to figure out strategically how can we leverage that to to deepen our 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 impact and results and outcomes. Yeah, on that, what do you think will be the keys to raising up the next wave of leaders and accomplishing those community-related goals? I think a lot of that is going to be predicated on our ability to really look at this next generation and empower them to take the torch. Uh, and we're doing some of that through our Elevate Male Leadership Academy and we're doing that in partnership with UNT Dallas, also with our Rising Suns project that's in uh, collaboration with the Dallas College. So we, we see a, a unique opportunity to both engage and empower uh, young men of color to provide them the necessary leadership skills that they need, the soft skills, and uh, really give them the resources to where they can become that next generation of leaders, not only uh, for their families, uh, but also for the community. And I'd like to add to what Taryn just said. I think uh, we've been having initial preliminary conversation with UNT Dallas, who have been really a solid partner for us about um, in their uh, school of business, um, you know, uh, could there be a program for, you know, commercial real estate? Uh, I know I've been working directly with the dean of the School of Business uh, in developing a credit analyst program to get more, you know, potential students involved in banking services and lending. The more representation you have from these different communities, the more you can speak to the needs and provide solutions. And so 
uh, we're, we're really being targeted, uh, leveraging, you know, our relationships and our experience, uh, let that intersect with, you know, wonderful established institutions to, uh, greater our, our reach and impact. Absolutely. And when we're talking about a lot of these, um, inequities and community issues, of course, um, incredibly complicated, um, one thing I'm always curious about is, you know, when you look at your own stories and experience in the future, how do you see the division of responsibility between business leaders like yourselves, uh, other businesses, governments, nonprofits, et cetera, in enacting the change we need to see in the world? That's a great question. Um, I think it's uh, multiple things have to, to come together, right? Hey, I think we need to educate, inform, and empower communities of color on opportunities that are out there in the workforce and how to begin to creatively have a seat at the table, if you will, uh, and begin to learn the importance of coming back to your community, giving back, making a difference, and continuing that sort of cycle where mentors are really pouring back into uh, these communities and raising up that next generation of leaders. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is uh, engaging with uh, business leaders and educating them on the things that are really happening within these communities and provoking a, a sense of obligation, right, to come and not necessarily give a handout, but a hand up. Like, what, what are you doing uh, within your company? to broaden your workforce diversity uh what what can what how can we forge that bridge right uh to where uh people within these communities are beginning to see that there's there's a part of engagement uh within the the business community that that people care about them and they have a voice and uh dallas has suffered for, for from that for for many years the huge divide from Northern Dallas to Southern Dallas. And I think in order for our city to be a better place, a more inclusive place, we're, we're going to have to find a way to bridge that gap. You know, you all have been incredibly gracious with your time today. But before I let you go, um, any reading materials, publications or media channels that you all recommend to listeners interested in keeping up the work that you all are doing and trends uh, in the various industries that you interact with? Yeah, I guess uh, our website is maidenfoundation.com, maidenfoundation.com. And then also you can follow us on social media, Maiden Twins, uh, to get the latest updates and things that we're set to, to do or working on, projects we're working on. Very good. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on the show today. I'm huge fans of yours and the work you guys are doing. And looking forward to seeing you guys continue to make strides to lift up communities through real estate, lending, and the work of the Maiden Foundation. Thanks, Adam. Really Thank appreciate you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Dirt Work with Adam Morrissey. We'll have a new episode out next month. If you have any story suggestions or want more info on the show or myself, hit me up on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.